0: Shalom alechem, Erev Tov, we are continuing in the Rambam series on the life of Rabban Gamliel, the second. We are in the encyclopedia on page 200, on the bottom left of that page. Baruch Atah Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Shakon, We ended off, last time, discussing how in the life of Rabban Gamliel, the Minim, The early Christians began rearing their head and infiltrating the Jewish people. I just want to share a thought. A thought that might not be popular, but I'm going to share it anyways. We live in a world in which a lot of very interesting things are happening. I watch what goes on in the world, sometimes with awe and sometimes with fear, Uh, sometimes with appreciation and sometimes with astonishment. There's a term that has become very popular to speak about. The term is cultural appropriation. Or as one person said it, my culture is not your costume. Now, I don't care much for the political aspects of these conversations that exist in the world. Nonetheless, cultural appropriation is a thing, and it exists. And we live in a world in which it is increasingly becoming more offensive to appropriate someone's culture. You can move that black thing off the... It's just the cover for the camera. Cultural appropriation is disrespectful, not in all ways, but in certain ways. And I'll tell you an example that has offended me recently. All of you know that we are a qiyinah, that is very welcoming of Gerim. Not welcoming, we're not welcoming of Gerim. We are very welcoming of Gerim. We believe in the interpretation of the Rambam to actively encourage others to join the Jewish people. And there are many, many Jewish people that weren't always Jewish, and they're not appropriating my culture. They are part of my culture. They are Jewish people like all other Jewish people, and they are part of Am Yisrael. But there are groups of non-Jews who have no intention of joining Am But they have every single intention of appropriating Am culture. They somehow, whether it's an offshoot of some messianic Jewish group or whatever else it might be, these are people who unfortunately, due to the art scroll revolution or the translation of books into other languages, not only are they just thumping the New Testament and Old Testament at us with English translations, Today, Higdidu so they've already gone beyond that. They teach Mishnah, Talmud, Midrashim, they're crazy over Midrashim. For all that I hate Midrashim, they love it even more. Twisting every Midrash and every Gemara and every Agada, everything. Ramchal, Misilat Yisharim, books of the Zohar. Their entire yeshivot of people, yeah, they call themselves yeshivot appropriating our culture. Somebody comes and says, Hi Rabbi, I'm not Jewish, where can I buy a Talit? Oh, are you converted to Judaism? No. I belong to this and this group, and we are Jewish people who live here, and we learn that. And do- My culture is not your custom. Don't go, just because you bought a Talit, and you have a big shofar in your living room, and you know how to get a chumash, an English translation, doesn't make you Jewish. I'm sorry to be the person who has to say that. And this does not come from a place if I don't want people, I want people to be Jewish. You can become Jewish. So what are you doing exactly by not becoming Jewish? What are you doing? What are you saying really? You're too good for Am Yisrael? You know better than Am Yisrael what the Torah says? Please tell me more how you understand Jewish tradition better than we do. And if someone doesn't speak about it, if someone doesn't say, khala, it's enough. Enough is enough. Then who's going to take care of this problem? And This is a real, real issue. The minim of yesterday, the early Christians were actually Jewish people. They were Jewish people with very terrifying Jewish beliefs. And our rabbis had to debate them in order to shut those ideas down. But I don't owe a debate to somebody who's not even part of my people and wants to debate with me what my books actually say or don't say. It's a frightening thing. We live in a really interesting world. But you would think that at this point in our history, with all the evolution, all the progression that we have, so at least stop appropriating my culture also. My culture is Judaism. I don't want to see people mocking it. I don't want to see big crosses and talitot and microphones and hallelujahs jumping on the stage. I don't want to see it. What's going on over here? And just like all other communities can protest that they don't appreciate when their culture is appropriated, I can appreciate the same thing. But I'll tell you even one more. I especially don't appreciate it when people whose grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents hunted Jewish people in the streets to kill them. And now they're busy appropriating my culture. That's already that's already over the top. It's time for people to say the truth. There's an interesting fellow walking around. Who's that? Oh, okay, good. That's fine. Right. That's okay, there's a client next door, so there's that, that might be it. Says the encyclopedia on the bottom page 200 on the left, it's our neighbors, Islam? Yes. That's good. in the personal life of Rabban Gamin, hayaish Istanis. He was an Istanis and a compassionate person. Uh, do you guys know anything about what the word Istanis? What the word is an Istanis? It, is, it is a very good, it's not a Hebrew word. We use it in, in rabbinic literature. Ashkenazim called it an istanis. Istanis is a person who is very particular about, normally in the context of, that we read about it, about their hygiene. So for example, how could they shower when they were mourning over relatives? That was a different, he's an istanis. He couldn't go for seven days without a shower. You find certain halachot. istanist It was an Istanis, that's why. An Istanis, is a person who is very particular about their cleanliness or about something else. And our Chachamim, therefore, uh, gave certain dispensations, if we could call them that, for them. Rabban Gamliel was an Esteinis. I'm going to give you a gemara here. Let's look in Mishnah Berachot. So I'm in the source sheet on source 75. The Mishnah is sharing a number of unusual incidents that involve Rabban Gamliel. Source 75. You see that in the source sheet? Scroll all the way down. Rachatz laila harishon shemeta ishto. Rabban Gamliel bathed the first night after his wife died. <inaudible> his students told him, <inaudible> did not you teach us Rabbi asur <inaudible> that a mourner is forbidden to bathe." This is, a very, this is the proper way in which to ask a question on one's rabbi. How, how could you do it? That's not how you ask. You ask, Rabbi, didn't you teach us? Rabbi, weren't you the one who taught us Shukhan Aruch chapter so-and-so where it says that an Avel is not allowed to bathe? Amar lahem, Rabban Ganiel tells them, eni chishar kol adam, I'm not like other people. ani. I am an istenis. You see, a mourner is prohibited from doing certain things that are comfort, comforting. They're they're too comfortable. They're luxurious almost. He's saying, I don't bathe out of comfort or luxury. I bathe out of necessity. My nece- I cannot literally. I cannot live without bathing. By the way, in the nine days, we're not even, This is real avelut, This is real mourning. The nine days. You have all kinds of not to shower, not to bathe. Not to, the bottom line. When we're talking about not bathing. There's not the a person who bathes once a month, once every other week. Listen, why do you have to schedule your bath this month during the nine days of Tisha Shabbat? Just do it before or after. But a person who bathes every day, and it's not you know soaking themselves—not like Esther Malka was soaking in perfumes and fragrances and the special salts and rubber ducky singing songs. It wasn't what's going on here. You're showering. How huh, the shower? A few minutes in the shower, you go, you shampoo, you come out. This is a shower. Right, There's a difference. There are certain types of bathing that are luxurious. You can ask me, should I, sit in a, should I sit in a jacuzzi? That's one thing. But going to shower? Showers. There are some people who shower two or three times a day. And so, how could it be that for nine days you're not going to shower? He's telling you here in a real, this is a real Avedut. That's not a real Avedut, the nine days. This is real Avedut. He says, how could you expect me to not shower? I'm different than other people. The Gemal Sanhedrin Tells us an interesting story. Let's skip through this paragraph on 76. In the middle, we're going to find a section. There's a story about one woman. shel Rabban She was the neighbor of Rabban Gamliel. Shemet bina. Her son died, no anenu. alav And she would cry about him the whole night. She was wailing and crying. This might not be something you experience so much in San Diego. When I lived in the old city of Yerushalayim, everything is right next to each other. The houses, the. I had a neighbor, he was across the street from me. Across the street. I was four flights up. He was four flights up. And when his microwave would beep, we would hear it. And there were times where we'd say, hey, your phone is ringing. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Come on. It's like, we would hear it in our house because our windows were facing across from each other. It's summer, everyone leaves the windows open. I can hear you snoring. You also hear all kinds of other uncomfortable things you, didn't, you wish you didn't hear. I remember once it happened, on Shabbat, I heard bawling, I kept wailing, and I went out to my balcony, and I saw that my neighbors, the next balcony over, and someone had passed away in their family. And that's how we knew, to go visit for Shiva, and offer condolences. But everything is close. Rabbi so was living in this type of environment. His neighbor lost her daughter, her son, and she would cry all night. Shama Rabban Gamniel Rabban Gamniel, he heard her. And he was such a compassionate person, he just couldn't stay in this house. He started crying also. He was so heartbroken that she was heartbroken. Ad, until what? Until his eyelashes fell out. He was really crying. Now by the way, this is a, a Gaddic piece here, right? So you can understand what are eyelashes to the eye. What, this is really a different conversation. Let's read it literally right now. Yes, let's be Kerites of the Talmud. Yes. There was no offense to the Kerites, just to us. Uh, we're taking things literally tonight. The next day, the students, they noticed that he had been crying so much. Mishkunato. And they removed the lady from the neighborhood so he could sleep. They offered to pay for a vacation for her somewhere, to go in a hotel, who knows. Lady, listen, you're keeping our rabbi up at night. Our rabbi can't sleep because you're crying so much. He's crying also because you're crying. It's a crazy... Lady, please, we'll, we'll relocate you here. We'll pay for a new house. Whatever it is they did, that's what they did. Inside the encyclopedia, we continue... He used to study the verse in Devarim, which says on page 201 on the top right, V'natana Hashem will give you compassion and He will have compassion over you and increase you. That's a Pasuk in Devarim. This should be a sign This should be a sign in your hands. Kol ha-mirachem Anybody who has compassion over other people, they have compassion over you in heaven. Then, any person which does not have compassion for other human beings, in heaven, they don't have compassion over that person either. This is a teaching that I quoted to you in Source 77 if you want to see it inside about exactly what happens there. But this teaching is a very important teaching. There are people who in their nature are, are emotionally numb, I don't know how to call it, I'm not talking about people who have been through a trauma and because of that their body, I'm talking about people who are intentionally numb to the suffering of other people. They don't care. They see someone hurting, it doesn't bother them. They see someone hungry, it doesn't bother them. They're, they're cold callous people. The Pasuk says, HaKadosh Bechu will give you compassion and then He will have compassion over you. Meaning. In order for Akadosh Hu to have compassion over you, you must be a compassionate person. Ala Biriyot. Right? Biriyot can literally be translated as all creatures, all living things, not just human beings. There are people who are callous people, and those people, they shouldn't expect to experience the rachamim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. with that. Words. Thank you. We continue. an Vatan. He was a very humble person. Let's look in the uh, Mishnah Keritut. So in Mishnah Keritut, source 78 in the source sheet, Amar Rabbi Akiva, said, Sha'aldi d'Raban Gamliel v'Rabbi Yoshua b'Itilis Emom. I asked a certain question to Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua in the Itilis, today in Israel they call it Itilis with a at the Zuz at in the meat market, in Emom, Emom, I don't know where that is. They went to go buy an animal for the wedding feast of the son of Aban Gamliel. What did he ask him? Yes, a very complicated question. It doesn't really matter to us right now. About forbidden relationships. What did they tell me? We didn't hear the answer. Meaning, when Rabban Gamiel was asked the question of Halakha that he did not know, what did he say? He said, I don't know. I don't know. You don't have to know everything. But someone once compiled a list of all the places where Rashi writes, I don't know. I don't know the explanation of this verse. I don't know what this means. If Rashi could write in all these places, I don't know, I don't know. Why do you have to know everything? When's the last time someone asked you a question you didn't have an opinion about? I don't know. This might be bigger than what I understand. But in the last few weeks, I've been seeing people writing all kinds of things. As if now they became, not only are they the advisors to the State Department of every country on the planet, they're also experts on foreign policy, they're experts on war, they're experts on civil rights. I look and I say, listen, I understand. I understand you want to have an opinion. But you have to know what you're able to have an opinion on and what you can't. Not not everything in the world is given like Plato for you to do whatever you want with you have to sometimes be able to say, I don't know, this is not my profession, it's not my forte, it's not my area of expertise. I got a complicated question last week. I should I tell you a complicated question? We have time for it? You all know we have a, a dear friend of ours in Ecuador, Rabbi Israel. he's a rabbi in Ecuador. Now in Ecuador, unfortunately like in many places in South America, both the Sephardic community and the Ashkenazi community do not allow for gerim, for converts to be in their communities, as a rule, as a, as a matter of rule. Why? Because some people want to take an easy ticket to hell. That's how they want to get there. So. <laughs> so in those communities, they don't accept giving. Now, in COVID in Ecuador, it was so bad. By the way, it's great to live in a country like that. But when when all of a sudden you need a first world country, you need medicine, you need an infrastructure, those kind of countries fall apart very quickly. And their medical system crashed, their burial system crashed. People were dropping dead all the time over there. Piles of bodies. bodies. The government still has not recuperated from that. So there still are no actual proper burials going on in Ecuador, from what I understand. And there was a time where the Jewish community was just burying people in their backyards. Now the mayor got upset in this place and he made them move the bodies after. But I remember. When they were they were doing funerals, anybody who owned a house was doing funerals for their family members in their backyard. They would dig a grave and bury. And so now, that part at least seems to have calmed down. But the government still is trying to keep up with all kinds of issues with burial. And so they are not allowing right now burial in the ground. People can either bury by cremating, or... Or they can bury them in, what do they call these days, Mausoleums, like these big buildings, like apartment buildings. They buy an apartment, and they put a body, you know what I'm talking about? It's like a big cement structure. There was a Jewish man who died a few hours away from where Ubisai lives. He went to go take care of the body. He does tahara, he does, he does tremendous thing. you should know. They ever want to give to the guy somewhere? Uh, just not so long ago, they almost lost their Beda Knesset. They, they, the mortgage, the banks, complicated. They have a bit of Knesset. He bought his own money, put on his own land, the mikveh that he's building. He's 90 days away from buying his own cemetery. Why? Because they won't bury any of the gerim in the Jewish cemetery. So what happens is that now they have someone who just died last week. He just died. And they don't know what to do. Because the Jewish cemetery won't let him get buried there. And the non Jewish cemeteries are not doing burials. And so the only option really is cremation. Or being buried in a mausoleum, and which is better? That's a very good point. But is what Baruch said. It's a very good point. I mean, if, if this happens in three months, he might have his own cemetery. It's about this absurd thing that gerim have to buy their own cemetery to bury our Jewish brothers and sisters. But that's what it is. I can I'm not the rabbi there. I can't change the world. I can only change from here. Whatever we can do. So I told Rubis, I said, listen, it's a really complicated question. There are a lot of moving parts here. And this is above my pay grade. And I reached out to Rav Peretz, and he was willing to deliberate with me, but he didn't want to make a decision. It's too, said, you know, when you start dealing with the afterlife and people, it's, not, it's no longer just is this meat kosher or not? It's a real serious question. It sets precedence for other people in other places. And ultimately, I didn't feel comfortable making the decision on my own. I had to reach out to a number of other chamim, and have a conversation. And there was not one point in that conversation that I felt, I'm so embarrassed I don't know the answer. I, I don't... I'm, my area of expertise, ba'u Hashem, is not funerals, burials, death. There are rabbis and that's what they do. They're involved in this area of halakha very heavily. I won't tell you on camera what we did. But the said, these are the kind of questions you have to know when to say, this is about my pay grade. And Rabban Gamil did exactly that. I don't know the answer to this question. It's okay to not know everything. To the contrary, sometimes you pretend to know something and then you come out looking like a fool. Don't pretend. Just say no. Or you make a big mistake. That's I, that might even be worse than coming out as a fool. the encyclopedia continues. in his home, Hayam kabelta chachamim yafot. He would always welcome the Chachamim into his home with a smiling face. And in the wedding of his child, Rabban Gamniel would go literally from table to table and he would wait on the Tamil Chachamim. He would give his guests food and drink. And I quoted here some relevant Gemarot for you to look at from Masechet. Khidushin. A long section from the Sarah Khidushin. Nohe Gayala Khmer Latmo. Rabban Gam was used to being very strict on himself. So Rabban Gadiel is not a double standard. He was lenient in halakha for other people. But in his own home, he was particular about certain things that he, he couldn't force on other people. By the way, many chachamim are like this. They rule one way outwardly. Not, it's not a double standard. They can't impose their personal stringencies on you. There are certain things that I do, certain things that another But those things we know are not law. And because of that, when you ask a question in Halakha, we must tell you what Halakha says. You want to do other things on top of that? You can do whatever you want, but you can't force other people. That's how Malak acted that way. and he said, Let's look at this Mishnah in Berachot. I'm going to pull it up in your source sheet. It's source 89 in your source sheet. Chatan patur rishon ad Chatan. Is exempt from saying the Shema Yisrael in the evening of his wedding. Why? He's involved in another mitzvah of getting married and consummating that marriage. Most Chatanim, this is their first time doing that. They're very nervous. There's no reason for them to also have to worry about other mitzvot. Chachamim exempt them from that mitzvah. There's a story about Rabban Gamdiel. That the first night that he got married, he said, "Shema Israel." his students told him, "No questions so far." Oh, I know. Um, didn't you teach us some um you shouldn't? Um, didn't you teach us that you shouldn't say Shema when you're um when, you, when at the night you got married? Very good. That's what they said. But let me ask, nobody has any questions so far. No, but what? Just to say shema at night. Everyone has said
1: shema. You have
0: said shema About the other mitzvot. Is the exam? I'm asking you. But I'm not asking you what the students of Rabban Gamil asked. It's going to be right there. patu uh, uh, from yeah. From what other mitzvot could there be that night? In general, by the way, Khatan and the Sheva Brachot, in the olden days, in the Svaradim, they used to bring the minyan to the house of the Khatan and Kanaan for the seven days. Why? So the Khatan wouldn't have to leave his wife to go pray in the minyan. You're not supposed to leave your wife for the first week. Right? That's what it says, no? You have to stay home and samma and, uh, you have to make her happy. So they used to bring the minyan to the Khatan's house. Likely the reason why they allowed the Khatan to go to the Barak is because probably it's so much more comfortable for him to just leave his wife for 30 minutes than to have the whole community come to his uh, bedroom uh, for the seven days of It's probably more comfortable in that direction. It's hey. Not, you know I mean? It's I think, the life example of that probably, um, that, I it's not quite intuition that there's a To give the wrong example of it. transcendence, but in, in this moment, in this situation, with my life and who I am, this is what you do without worrying about breaking something. It's, Interesting. it's a very different it's it's a t- flexibility here. Well, I think when you're a Chacham in general, you have such flexibility. Right. And that's the difference between ignorance and knowledge. And he saw what happens, uh, you guys didn't understand my question, so we'll try to read it again. Amur Atamidav, his students tell him, did you not teach us, Rabbi Yalchanan? What did you teach us? Shechatan patur mekirat shema, balayla rishon. chatan? Is not obligated to say shema. On? On the night of his marriage. Very good. You taught us, Rabbi. You're the one who taught us this. Amar lahem, he tells them, eni shomea I will not listen to you trying to convince me not to accept Hashem as my king, even for one moment. Halacha says he doesn't have to say Shema. His students are telling Rabbi, you taught us the Halacha. What does he tell them? Who cares? I'm not listening to you. You're trying to get me to stop saying Shema? You're trying to get me to stop saying Shema? I'm not listening to you. I'm not interested. But you didn't under, what's going on in this conversation here? Nothing's unusual here, too? <laughs> yeah, why? What? Oh, first of all, he's doing something he told the students they don't have Okay, that's one. Meaning he's being stricter about something than what he taught his students. That's true. Next. But that's what—that's the point we're trying to prove in story. the story. It's to like to he's being a He's different from the others. He hasn't the that other people maybe don't need, but he does need it. Okay, I accept. Nothing else stands out to you in the story? Chutzpah of what, what part of the khutbah? Like they're, they're but they're telling him, that's what, oh, oh, is there, I know, the first part doesn't matter. The second part, what are you doing in your rabbi, how, the rabbis got married tonight, what are you busy, how do you know, how do you know what he's doing? The only answer I give you to that, maybe they saw him at the wedding saying shema, I don't know how to tell you how they saw, how do they know, how do they know he said shema or not? There are more unusual stories like that about students hiding in their rabbi's bedrooms. There are such stories like that. Uh, the second the second part of this, though, no? Rabban Gamliel already had students when he got married. At what age did he become a Chacham? Notice that we've already spoken about in the past that Rabban Gamliel married a very famous woman. Yeah? No. We mentioned that others married Rabban Gamliel's sister. Rabban Gamdiel At this point, I don't know if this is his first marriage. I don't know if this is a second marriage. I don't know if he has more than one wife. I don't know if he's. This is happening later in his life. He lost his wife. I can't tell you, but he's clearly old enough that he has talmidim, and clearly these talmidim are close enough to him that they know what's going on on the first night of his wedding. There are times where he did things stricter than the law. Not because that's the law. But because that's something that he wanted to be uh, strict about, and if you look at the example in Masechet Bava Metzi'a, that's in source ninety, you'll see a fascinating thing about being strict on himself regarding the price of crops and things of the like. Bimoto, when he passed away, this is perhaps the most important part of it. I was at a funeral today. Too many people passing away. I've been too many funerals too recently. Too much. Um, But this one is very relevant. This is very relevant. Let's look at Mitzvah Ketubot. Let's just read it in Mitzvah Ketubot. You'll appreciate it more in the source. That's source ninety-one. My Rabban Gamliel. What's the connection between Rabban Gamliel and the house of mourning? Says the Gemara. The Tanya we learned, originally in the Jewish people, The funeral expenses, meaning the expenses associated with the death of a family member, were so much more difficult than actually dealing with the death of the family member. That's how expensive it was to get buried in the Jewish people. It was so expensive that people were more worried about how they're going to pay for the funeral, then how are they going to get through without a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a wife, a husband, a child? That's how it used to be. Until they used to literally abandon their dead and run away. People were so, they were not able to afford the funeral costs. And so they would just leave the dead bodies and run out. They don't want to take responsibility for it. Ad Until the came along. And he decided to disrespect himself in his burial. He's a a prince, no? He's a chief rabbi. He deserves a very fancy funeral. He decided, no, I have to change this trend. I have to show people that Jewish people don't need all of this in order to get buried. And he instructed that when he passes away, they shouldn't do anything fancy. They should just dress him in simple uh, pishtan linen clothing. And then the nation took his example, and they began burying their dead only in very simple linen garments. Rav Papa said, nowadays today. People bury the dead. It's not even in linen clothing. It's in some really cheap, uh, really cheap garments that they bury the dead in. Meaning, it's set, the example. He, he broke the trend, or he set a new trend. Rambam rules this as a halacha. Min Israel kachu. This is the custom of the Jewish people when it comes to burials, says the Rambam. shel met. We close the eyes of the dead. V'im niftach piv. And if his mouth opens, we tie the cheeks. After we wash him, we stuff all the holes. And we anoint him in all kinds of perfumes. We cut his hair. And we dress him in burial shrouds. At a very simple linen, white linen garb. And the rule is that clothing that we bury the dead in cannot be expensive. And the chachamim, they buried themselves in the cheapest clothing that were worth only one zuz. So as not to embarrass people who could not afford a fancy or funeral. And we cover the face of the dead. So that we don't embarrass the poor people. That their faces are darkened with hunger. The Poor people are going to see the dead man, they're going to think, wow, he looks better than I do. Or, I look like him. And because of that, there's a minhag to cover the face of the dead. All of these minhagim, notice, very little has to do with the dead person himself. And everything to do with sensitivity to the people around. The Chachamim wanted to be buried cheaply so that other people wouldn't waste money on a funeral. Chachamim covered the faces of the dead so that the poor people wouldn't be embarrassed. Maran rules this halacha. Maran in 93. Kovrim ha-met ikarim, afilu we do not bury the corpse in very expensive burial shrouds, even for the prince of the Jewish people. Where did he learn that from Maran? Rabban Gamliel. I mean, even Rabban Gamliel didn't get buried that way. The second halakha, 94, The accepted custom is to bury the dead in white clothing. Okay, the next halakha has to do with uh, men and women. And then ultimately, Yoreh Maran writes how we close the eyes and so on and so forth as we read in the Rambam. Do you know how much it costs to get buried in San Diego today? 30000 50000 just the plot itself can cost a person $16,000. Just the plot. I'm not talking about the mortuary. I'm not talking about the cemetery. I'm not talking about the, the, the tombstones. I'm not, none of that. With all of that, what happens? People lose their loved ones. You've been to many funerals. When's the last time you got at a funeral and you wondered, how, what did it take for this funeral to even happen in the first place? I was once with a person here in San Diego at the funeral, whatever they do, the office, the charge for the burial. And this person, was a lady, was a widow, had to take out every credit card they had put $500 here, put $200 here, put $1,000 here, put, until they were able to cover the... The people, they don't care. They, they sit there, it's a business, uh, they know that if they're compassionate, everyone's going to take advantage of them, so they, they take advantage of other people instead. Cool. Yeah, the layaway problem, right? And this whole... You know, I met a person recently, told me, she said, Rabbi, just so you know, I already went ahead and paid for all my burial arrangements in advance, and I wrote your name down as the officiating rabbi. Yeah, you're not going anywhere. Relax, you know, you're still young. And... Rabbi, my children won't be able to afford to bury me. So I took care of the burial now. And I heard that when I pay for it in advance, they take less advantage of me. So No, for real it's a discount, because they know that it's not under pressure. When people are under pressure, they'll do anything for pressure. I was once in a Beda Knesset, in Mansi, New York. My wife's Hasidut, the Karlin stolen Hasidim. Right before Musaf, the Chazan stopped and said, I'm not allowed to go further. The Rebbe said in Yerushalayim, we can't go forward unless we fundraise this amount of money. What happened? There's a family in Givat Zev, where the Chassidut is based out of. And they lost their son. There's a family, that had a son, who had 11 children. Nine children, 11 children, something like that. And what happened was, Chiva took him, they buried him. And the family was making payments, monthly payments, to cover the burial cost. Within the year of those monthly payments, this man's father died. Khebrah Kadisha said, okay, we can't bury him until you finish making the payments on the first body. They said, we don't have that kind of money. We can continue doubling our payments. We can't pay him up front before we can do it. What did Khebrah Kaddishah say? Tough luck. They left this body in the house with all the orphans there and the widow there in his bed. Three days. They're not coming. By the way, what's a Why What's the word chavakadisha mean? Chavah means a like a group. What is kaddisha? Holy, a holy group. Why are they a holy group? What's a holy about them? They do something that nobody probably wants to do. It's a big mitzvah that most people don't want to do. And why kidusha? What What's a holy about them? Yeah, what's so, I know, what's so holy about that? The guy who drives the hearse for the funeral home, why don't we call him a Nahaga Kadisha? Why don't we call him a holy driver? <laughs> well, that's, so that's the answer. So why is the Chava holy? They don't take money for this. They don't take money for this. It's all free. In Morocco, for example, the Khiva Kadisha would always be seated first in the Beda Knesset. In the weddings, always in the center of everybody showed gratitude to them because they didn't make any money for what they did. It was something they did out of a, a desire to help other people. That's why people gave them respect. Today, Chavakadisha. Uh huh. I should call I don't know. What do you want to call I know a man here in San Diego who went to bury his uncle in Israel. In the middle of the funeral procession, they already bought a plot, they're carrying the body. The head of the comes over and says, Hey, you know, there's a better plot, better view on the other side of this hill. A uh, view, it's amazing, but people invest in this. It doesn't say anything anymore. And he says, Okay, okay, let's do it. You want to upgrade? Absolutely, I want to upgrade. Okay, so let's go to my office and swipe your credit card. They're literally carrying the body from the place where they say the speeches to where they bury, not like here where they do these graveside uh, uh, burials he said, now? he said, of course, but what about well, how are we going to get away from he says, don't worry, I told my guys to say some extra tehillim his guy said extra tehillim he went to go pay another 15,000 shekels and then he came back and the holy continued moving holy? what's holy here? If I had the money, I would find a place to make a Betalmin, uh, a cemetery, where people would get buried for free. Not free, it sounds too idealistic. You know that they're in Philadelphia, I, I buried a man here whose grandparents started in Philadelphia a funeral home and a cemetery. It's Jewish. They, they were the early founders of the reform movement in Philadelphia that every person in the community, they paid membership to the synagogue, and they paid membership to the funeral home. What was it? Like $100 a year. $100 a year for their whole life. And so long as from when they turned 18 until they passed away, they made their payments of $100 a year, they got, that covered their burial in the cemetery. None of their children ever had to worry, The grandchildren, nobody ever had to worry, as long as they were, it sounds funny, but a member of a cemetery... Their burial was covered. Even that a person could do. Yeah, for bayot. For I mean, the, the, the original people there realized it's expensive. And not everyone's children can pull it off. So let's take care of it now. And this is these kind of things, Amish starts to think about this. It can't be that I see every day, every day. I'm not exaggerating. People call and people ask, we need help bearing a father. We need help bearing a brother. We need help bearing a... How? They can't afford it. What do you want them to do? People go broke with money they don't have. They make fundraisers, Instead of someone saying the system is broken here. Why, why do we still get buried in cemeteries where they rake the prices, why? Why is there a Jewish section of a non-Jewish cemetery? Why? Why do we let other people decide for us what is moral, what is ethical, what is correct for our communities? And so because I know that many people are superstitious, And I know that other people don't appreciate talking so much about death. And because in general you're supposed to end off on a good note, I wanted to bring one last teaching from Rabban Gamliel, the last source of my source sheet in 97. It has nothing to do with anything. But it's just there so you could say, ah, we spoke about something nice at the end of this class. Rabban Gamliel said, anybody who did not say these three things in Pesach, did not fulfill their obligation of Pesach. What are they? V'eluhen. Pesach. Matzah. umaro, Pesach. The offering of Pesach. Matzah, the bread that we eat. And Maror, the bitter herbs. Where is this from? The Haggadah. Make sure on Pesach you say it. According to Rabban Gamiel, if you don't say these three words, you don't fulfill your obligation. Rabban Gamiel is a character that we spend a lot of time on. And the reason we spend time is this is really where the new leadership of Am Yisrael recreated in the Avnet. The leaders that we've been speaking about are all interconnected. Those politics between Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Hukunus, Rabban Gamliel, who's really the authority, who can trump who, what are the values that are leading the Jewish people, all of those conversations, we think they happened 2,000 years ago, they're happening right now also. And the lessons that we learn from these stories can help us figure out what is the right direction that Am Yisrael is supposed to be going now. Where are, we suppo- where are we headed from here? If you don't know where you're going, you have no idea what to do right now. People say, oh, we'll figure it out later. You can't figure out important things later. Important things have to be figured out now so you know which decisions to make when we get there. And hopefully, the lives of these Chachamim, Babal Gamiel, it'll be Oshoah, it'll be Akiva, among others that they will guide us, they'll be a path for us looking forward, what Amishah needs to be doing with Hashem.